The Weekend Variety. Wireless. This week, a story of incredible, you might even say stupid bravery combined with misbehaviour. And it's in World War I, a confounding tale, but man, it's a riveting one. The story of John Douglas Stark from World War I. And he had a very, very interesting background for a person that went to World War I out of him, the Cargill. Jared. Well, what a remarkable character, Graham. I must admit, I kind of hypes me up even researching him. He's not unknown, of course. He's been quite well celebrated, old John Douglas Stark. He's been called an outcast, a, a rebel, a misfit, and, and above all, a war hero. But, you know, and we have our sort of very committed VC war heroes, of course, and, and he would have definitely had a VC, possibly even two. VC and bar. Yeah, if it hadn't been for his criminal record. You know how they say on the television, you know, this program may contain violence that may be upsetting for some viewers. Well, I almost feel obliged to warn listeners, Graham. You know, it's a most remarkable story. He had two nicknames, Starkey and Killer. And it was courage, his incredible courage on the battlefield, but also his crime that defined him. He was a violent savage, really. He was one of those chaps that was born to fight and die on the battlefield except he didn't die on the battlefield and he went on to have a very unfortunate kind of post-war existence in New Zealand he just never made it back to New Zealand psychologically in a way and it's all a reminder I suppose you know that our Anzac legends we have very preconceived notions of our Anzacs and the sort of people they were but often they didn't follow straight lines as exploits are absolutely immortalised in a 1936 documentary novel by Robin Hyde and it's called Passport to Hell. It was actually republished last year by Auckland University Press and again it wowed the critics it, uh, just like it did back in 1936 especially in England. I mean no one could believe it really but there's just nothing else like him and my, my mouth sort of stayed open researching the man. He was like a mad dog you know, hand-to-hand combat. He just couldn't be beaten. He was like one of those berserk Norsemen of old, you know, the Viking raiders. Yeah, there is a school of thought in the military that some of the most valuable men in your force are going to be the 2% of psychopaths that don't get on in normal society. Yeah, that's true. We tend to see that Kiwi digger fighting in the trenches, well, has been described as sort of cynical, stoical, but fundamentally uh, obedient. But it wasn't actually true, and the uh, commander, Major General um, Sir Andrew Russell, is described as all beady eyes and bristling moustache, but he wanted the minority of what he called the incorrigible 
incorrigibles, the mutineers, the drunks and the brothel creepers. He wanted them all sent home and punished savagely too, but Wellington politicians, they overruled it and uh, the Minister of Defence, James Allen, he declared in 1917 that all the troublemakers should be given the post of honour at the front lines where they might be, quote, shot to bits or reformed by their heroism. And I think this perfectly suited Starkey. There was just sort of nothing else like him. He was wounded 37 times. He absconded back to the battlefield from his hospital bed virtually in all the cases. He, he was recommended for a VC on numerous occasions, but because he didn't respect military discipline, he got court-martialed nine times in his military career. This was only in a few years. And he was sentenced to a combined 35 years of penal service, all of which was cancelled because he was so brave. And a man like him is used and, and not expected to ever come back to New Zealand, of course, but he made it back because he, no one could beat him, literally. What was his background? I understand he was, interestingly, American Indian background. Very interesting parentage actually. Stark was born in 1894 in Invercargill. Now, he, his father was a Delaware um, Native American Indian and also had, uh, the father also had a African American blood in him too and his name was Wild, the W-Y-A-L-D which is sort of uh, uh, pertinent, isn't it? Anyway, his father was born in Florida in 1832 and Wild Starkey, he followed the gold rushes to Australia and then he arrived in Southland in 1857. He had a Spanish wife, so he was born of these two parents. His father ended up running a pub in Invercargill. He married twice. The second time was in his 60s, actually. John Douglas Stark was the last of the three sons from that second marriage. Now, Douglas Stark, he was basically a naughty kid. By 12, he was actually committed as a ward of the state to the um, Burnham Industrial School. Now, this type of government school for neglected or delinquent children, it was run along very harsh sort of Spartan lines. Whenever he came to court, he just refused to buckle. He was obviously a complete rebel. In 1914, and this is only six months from the outbreak of the war. The Stark was 19 and he earned a year in Invercargill prison for stealing a bicycle and the, the newspaper reported the day actually called him a half-breed Maori kid. He received these damning reviews from the Burnham School's deputy manager and uh, this is what he wrote at the time. He said, the accused was an absconder from the school and committed the theft on the very date of his last absconding. Since 1906, his record has been a very bad one he has absconded frequently and there was convictions for theft against him. This deputy manager recommended a term in adult prison rather than any return to any sort of borstal or, or industrial school. So he, he was definitely heading to be a hardened criminal and perhaps lucky for him, the war started. Right. <laughs> for, for such people, it can be... A profitable occupation, <laughs> suited to it, but, yeah. but not the discipline. Yeah, exactly. He was almost termed a suburban menace. And he was only out of prison a few days when the World War 
one broke out and he saw another sort of opportunity and he was keen to enlist and and the army was open to him because of these orders from Wellington that these tearaway, runaway, violent runaways should be put on the front line, you see. So they enlisted him. The, you know, any idea of discipline, of course, didn't appeal to him in the slightest, but it was the frontline action that he wanted. Really? Well, uh, this is regarding these people as disposable and the war as somewhat of uh, a, a little bonus. Exactly. And he was actually uh, technically on the run from the police at the time of his enlistment, actually. But really? he managed, yeah, yeah, incredible. And the records give his age on enlistment as 20 years, seven months. And he was also on record, he had dark black hair and complexion, brown eyes. His height was five foot ten and a half inches. And he gave his occupation as a sharer. Now, even during training, he was usually confined to barracks because he was just too feisty. Yeah, he trained as a bomber in the um, fifth reinforcements and and he was put into the New Zealand Expeditionary Force to Gallipoli and he sailed off on the Manganui. So it was a sort of close call for him in New Zealand where he found his real career, if you like, on the battlefield. All right, we'll take a break, come back with the story of John Douglas Stark, New Zealand's Rambo of World War One and two very conflicting sides. Uh, you can see him in, uh, from various angles. A, a brave and valuable soldier deserving a VC and bar or a menace to society. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders this week, John Douglas Stark, World War I hero, in inverted commas. His exploits on the Western Front in Gallipoli would have earned any other man VC and bar, that really is saying something. However, his anti-authoritarian outlook and his behaviour towards authority in the army uh, meant that he got in as much trouble as he did uh, gallant things for his fellow soldiers on the front. Jared, um, it's it's an extraordinary background. This guy's got his Native American father and Spanish mother in Invercargill. That. That wouldn't be a sentence that would be uttered that often about Invercargill in 1850, would it? No, definitely not. And uh, the Starks military records, they held at Archives New Zealand, they show that on February the 13th, 1915, he was fresh out of prison in Invercargill. He, he enlisted in the 5th Regiment of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force and he joined the um, Otago Infantry Battalion as a private and uh, he, he later travelled to Gallipoli uh, and he was wounded there and hospitalised three times that year. Now, each time he discharged himself from hospital and demanded to uh, go back to the battlefield. It was as simple as that. Often these injuries would be um, would be serious enough to send a man back to New Zealand, but not, not Starkey. He could barely stay in bed a week anywhere and he's always restless to get back to his mates. He proved himself very early on the most remarkable um, offensives in the heat of the fighting um, in August 1950. 
2015, um, following the offensive uh, at Chunuk Bear, Stark joined one of the burying parties, helping recover the dead and wrapping them in oiled sheets. And he just went on and on for days, just refusing to stop bringing out these terribly swelled bodies, all enormously uh, um, smelling. Oh, it was just gross. From the hills at no man's land in Gallipoli. Yeah, he just was relentless in his task. He stuck out just completely in this role of all the time, you know, bringing back the wounded and taking on anything. There was a most remarkable story um, told in, in his book, uh, Passport to Hell, and it's written basically by Robin Hyde, but it's a, telling his exact accounts. He was seriously injured from um, shell fire at Gallipoli in August 1915 and he was taken by hospital ship to Malta and he stayed in bed for a week at the naval hospital there but just like his other times he was wounded he got restless and just wanted to get back with his mates and he was no means an easy patient for, for any of even the medical orderlies and nurses to handle it was quite interesting. He had a, um, a bit of a personality flaw Graham and it, it was a sort of strength on the battlefield but he could be very cooperative if given a task and, and he'd set to but after a couple of days as people would describe it he would lose it and when he'd lost it he could be aggressive to anyone particularly those in authority and this is what always laid him in trouble he often assaulted senior officers if he didn't like their orders or thought he was being picked on well 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 that is not really uh, taken in very good light in something called the army. No, that's right. <laughs> Discipline and hierarchy is absolutely everything. So Yeah, it is. Anyway, he got back to Gallipoli, but it was soon after that the troops were all evacuated. First of all, his division went to Egypt to be reorganised, and then they proceeded to France. Now, um, this is where they joined the Allied forces. They were sent to Amontier, where which had been mostly destroyed. This is where the Stark, of course, came up against the Germans rather than the Turks. Now, he was a member of the 1st Battalion, now Otago Regiment, and he certainly distinguished himself there. There was one most remarkable story that um, the New Zealanders were pinned down by a um, German machine gun post with uh, about three people in it and he actually volunteered to his commanding officers to take out this German machine gun post and instead of sort of creeping up with a gun and a bayonet or anything he, he actually crept up with a club which he'd wired a big heavy metal cog to and this is the description. There was a, a German machine gun with a crew of three that in the rising dawn made merry across no man's land, telling the story of a raid that got cut to pieces before it reached the lines. But as the gun sang, there was a shout overhead and a terrible figure crashed down on it from behind. The figure wore a tunic torn open to the waist, clotted and dyed with hideous blood. Blood dripped from its nose and open mouth, blood stained its nightmare club, a 
giant axe handle with an iron cog nailed to one end. It was neither white man nor black. Under the blacking smeared on face and throat, the skin shone red-brown. So much the three German gunners had time to see before the figure uttered a madman's shriek and with a madman's strength leapt down on them. The axe handle swung twice, then the butt end was thrust into the third gunner's face as he turned to run. The three just lay there in the pit and the figure groped forward with great brown hands, swung the machine gun round and then the rattle of bullets begun. The terrible figure met an officer from the Otago lines as he dragged the machine gun towards the British wire. The officer, who was a major, he stopped and said, Good work, Starkey. Unbelievable. A psychopath can be handy on the battlefield. Yeah, and he'd uh, creep up day or night anywhere and uh, take out, he'd literally take out anything that was required. And he was always the first to put himself forward. That It's quite incredible. Some of his stories just all go like that and absolutely bloodthirsty. There's no doubt about it. But he would often become totally unhinged. He you know, kept butting heads with the authority and he was always regularly behind bars, always disciplinary offences. He'd be refusing to attend daily parades or roll calls or even fatigue duties and during the winter of 1916, he, he received the first of two spells. There was seven and 14 days of the of the notorious army field punishment. You know, now this was the one that was administered to the conscientious objector Archibald Baxter, where they were sort of strung up, almost crucified. He was tied to a wagon wheel, and, and he said the weather was hot. And but Stark just slept as the ranks and civilians went past, and when any officer appeared, Starkey raised his head and called him every uncomplimentary term imaginable. Wow. This is one hell of a character to have at the front. Yeah, it was. And it wasn't just this bloodthirsty, uh, I'm going to go out there and and, and, and massacre the Germans with hand-to-hand combat. He did so much to retrieve the wounded and the dead from no man's land as well, with equal bravery, and that really is selflessness. It is, yeah. And they, you know, some of the accounts. There was one fellow digger. He painted a vivid picture of, of the event. You know, a, as we entered the trench, amidst a hail of bullets came, and Stark came through with a badly wounded man on his shoulder, and he laid him at the doctor's feet as gently as a kitten. And then, quick as a flash, backward and forward, he continued carrying them in so easily. Easily. He was recommended for a Victoria Cross for his actions that night, actually, after that account. And in the end, his sentence was commuted that he had got to be in prison. But it was interesting. It wasn't considered the right thing at headquarters for any soldier to win his country's highest honour while on probation for a picturesque crime sheet, as they called it. A long rap sheet. Yeah, that's right. But as I said, he would sometimes become totally 
unhinged. Of course, one of the worst incidents was finding his dead brother at the Battle of the Somme. Now, this was in September 1916. He totally unhinged him. The book Passport to Hell, it describes the scene. He said he started to dig a shallow pit in no man's land, tearing at the soil like a mad dog, sometimes with his bayonet, sometimes with naked hands. And when it was about three feet deep, he put the awful contorted bits of George, his brother, into the pit, but he couldn't make them look like a body no matter how hard he tried. Now, this caused him to go absolutely berserk, and as the Oxford Companion of New Zealand Military History it records this event, it says it reduced him to a state of berserk fury. His ensuing slaughter of the enemy extended to the cold-blooded killing of prisoners. He was a, a man alone, Graham. I mean, fabulous to have on your side, but totally uncontrollable. Yeah, well, after his sterling work in recovering bodies and wounded from no man's land with seemingly no regard for his own safety, um, he was under a sentence of five years penal servitude for striking an officer. It's amazing he didn't actually get shot by the British. Oh, it was absolutely incredible, wasn't it, for hitting a corporal, actually, yeah, and he was sentenced to two years, I think, in the, in the hell house of a military prison over there, and that was Le Havre, one, for hitting a corporal, and within five months he escaped from a jail working party, sort of first roaming for some days, then returning to his battalion by Christmas, which he wanted to rejoin, and he remained under a cloud, of course, with the military authorities. They sort of didn't know what to do with him. He, he just carried carried on showing his valour. There was a second um, Somme battle in, on March 1918 and the enemy spectacularly counter-attacked and one of Starkey's most um, notable exploits um, of the war was inspired by revenge again for the death of one of his mates. Now, Starkey wouldn't consent to one of his best mates, a, a young guy, joining his suicide club, as he called it, because he, he thought of this um, comrade of his as only a kid and the young fellow, but the young fellow was absolutely absolutely determined to go with him. So Starkey resorted to just knocking the boy out so he, he uh, could leave him behind. And Starkey and the others, they blackened their faces and they went out on their mission. And and uh, on their return, Starkey found that the young friend must have followed them out when he had regained consciousness. It followed them out onto the front line. Yeah, just, you know, hoping to join them. And But this young guy hadn't returned. So Starkey went out again. This time to sort of get even with the Germans. The German machine gun was still firing as he crawled towards it. Okay, so they were out in the battle. The kid had managed to join them. Then there was the battle and then they all returned to the trenches. Yeah, that's right. And then the, the boy hadn't returned. Presumably he'd gotten uh, mown down, I'd say, right. because the German machine gunners were very active that night. Anyway, Starkey crept up until he lay just above the gun, and then he, he drew the pin out of one of his Mills bombs grenades there, and he very gently he rolled the bomb down into the machine gun nest. Now, there were five Germans there, and he, he uh, said Starkey, he just got a glimpse of their startled faces when the bomb exploded right in the middle of them. 
you know, he just couldn't stop this joker. And again, Starkey hunted amongst the wounded. He turned over bodies that lay face down in the mud and he came across the body of his young friend he'd knocked out. He carried it back and then he took his young friend's body into a Montier and uh, buried it there in the public cemetery. When he got back to his dugout, he was the only one of his party left. So he was the sole survivor that day. But he carried on committing small offences in his army record. It was studded with sort of entries like 14 days field punishment, seven days field punishment, uh, forfeit seven days pay, uh, forfeit 14 days pay. In, in some ways, this no man's land was actually the safest place to be in. You know, they, they, if he was out there, at least he couldn't be in trouble. And he had a, there was no doubt he had a drinking problem. He, he got quite into the absence as well. And the men objected to having to mount a guard over him whenever they were out for a rest. Because they ad- admired his courage. Yeah, they admired it so much. But at the same time, they were ordered to contain him as well. And he became like this legend amongst the troops. But at the same time, he, he almost started to become ostracised, Graham, because he just kind of... He was just a lone, crazy man. All right, we'll take a break. The amazing story of sort of a, a Rambo-like character, um, maybe psychopathic, God knows, but bravery of that, there's no doubt. And had it not been for him getting in so much trouble with authority uh, in the army in World War I on the Western Front, he would have been given a VC and bar. And of that, there's no doubt. Private J.D. Stuff. The Weekend. Variety. Wireless. John Douglas Stark. World War I. Crazy man. Brave as all hell. But also got himself into all sorts of trouble with the army that he was in. His exploits would have been deserving of VC and bar. However, he ended up in military prison. Nine court-martials. This is a peculiar character. Valuable in wartime, but also a liability as well to the authorities. All right, it's World War One. He's been out in no man's land, taking out German positions single-handedly, sometime with his bare hands and a, and a club, for God's sake. Rescuing wounded from no man's land, and uh, recovering bodies as well as taking on action. And one major action, he returns to barracks to find that he's the only one of his party left. What a story this is. This is just crazy stuff from the front, Jared. Yeah, it is. And his, his tales of his heroism, they just piled one on top of another. He always demonstrated his utter disregard of danger, even in broad daylight. A few months later, Starkey he was um, sentenced to two years hard labour for assaulting a corporal and he was imprisoned in the um, number three military prison in Lavra, and this was one of the toughest military prisons in France but he did make a sensational escape on the 22nd of December 1917 and his official army record it shows that he had a kit deficiency of £1.11 shillings when he broke out of that prison and he was widely hunted by military police and he managed to get to Paris and he mixed with the Australians and he wore their uniform even then he went with an Australian troop train trying to find the New Zealanders. When he got there, thinking that he was going to join them, he found they'd moved on to the Somme to stem the German offensive. And Starkey worked his way through the trenches and finally joined up with the 4th Company, which was the 1st Otago Battalion. This is so crazy. He's in big trouble with his 
army, they put him in jail, and he escapes to go back to the front line to join the army. Yeah, but he always carried with him, Graham, letters from company commanders of all his units thanking him for his work on the battlefield. So he could always produce these letters and somehow bluff his way through. And he'd been back with the battalion three weeks when his presence was discovered by the colonel. And, he, you know, they didn't even know he was actually there because he'd never report for duty in the morning or company commander and the men. They didn't want give him up, of course, when they realised an appeal was made to the commanding officer. It was found that Starkey would be useful at that time getting some prisoners, so they kept him on. It was He was, he was a very useful man. I mean, you just couldn't deny that, despite the trouble that he caused. Well, really, you can't keep this up without... Well, he's already been seriously injured twice, wasn't it, at Gallipoli? And now he's at the front. It's bound to happen again. Oh, it is, and there, there was a night of the 19th and the 20th of February 1918. It was a successful raiding operation. It was carried out by the 1st Otago Battalion, and the objective was a derelict tank, actually, and this was reached, and it was surrounded by the raiding party, and five of the enemy were taken prisoner, but one of them was immediately shot by Starkey, who was not even officially one of the raiding party. Wow. And apparently he wanted his Iron Cross, apparently. Uh... You know, he was a tough man to come across. I'd hate to be his prisoner. He was in a different battalion of the Otago Regiment when he went out on some very dangerous forays with Sergeant Travis. He was the most decorated New Zealand soldier of the war at the time, and Starkey used to actually say that Travis had no guts in comparison to him. So this could perhaps be accounted for by their different methods because Travis was more calculating and cunning, whereas Starkey, he was just sort of impetuous, and he'd just sail into any situation. Nature's were poles apart. Towards the end of the last months of the war, he was making frequent daylight reconnaissances of the um, enemy lines. This was in June 1918, and he, he arranged with a mate to rush an enemy post uh, after firing a grenade, and the mate forgot to pull out the pins. So Starkey just took a flying leap, but he got entangled in barbed wire, and he got shot through the stomach. Now, when the stretcher bearers got him out, the uh, MO said, well, that's the end of Darkey and uh, it certainly looked like the end of his adventurous military career, but he was sent to England for convalescence, but he spent most of the time absent without leaving London, and when they finally caught up with him, they wanted to send him back to New Zealand, and this was the end of July 1918, and and uh, he still had an unexpired part of 17 months of a sentence of two years' hard labour that they could call on, and it was pointed out to Starkey that his fines would be refunded and his pay back restored, but Starkey was just determined to go back to help his mates at the front, and he got his own way again. A few days later, he was back marching in the battle area in pursuit of, of the retreating Germans, and Starkey just got himself an, an Iron Cross one day, shot down the German who had not handed over quietly, and, and suddenly a shell um, landed near him, and only one of them was left standing. This time it wasn't Starkey, so he was wound, badly wounded this time. Seriously, he was taken back to London, and he went into hospital at Walton-on-Thames there, and the war ended a few weeks later, and Starkey returned home on a hospital ship to New Zealand and he was discharged from the army in January 1920 and unfit 
for service. Do we know the nature of these final wounds that took him out? Shrapnel wounds, apparently, okay. yeah, and pretty severe, apparently. That was the end of his, of his very colourful um, battlefield career, but it started a terrible struggle in New Zealand to settle down. Okay, we'll take a break and come back with what happened to this extraordinary character. I can't imagine civilian life is going to suit him too well when he felt, uh, <laughs> could we say, at home on the Western Front. We're talking the story of John Douglas St Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. John Douglas Stark, Private, Otago Battalion, Western Front. He'd served in Gallipoli, injured, went back. Uh, served on the Western Front, injured twice, went back. Put in jail, escaped to go back to the front, injured again. Crazily heroic deeds on the front. But, however, something about his personality made him almost a liability as well. One can imagine that life after wartime is not going to be plain sailing for so many people that were involved in the battles of World War I, but especially someone like this. Oh, no. Um, so by mid-1920, he was back in his old stomping ground in Vicargill, um, where he took occasional work again as a sharer. And later that year, he uh, appeared in the local court and was sentenced to three years in jail with hard labour on charges of burglary, arson and theft. The court register said, Do you know your charge? And he said... Charged with being Starkey, sir, and God knows what else. Following his release, he worked as an unskilled labourer and he drifted in and out of jail, mostly nearly all for assaulting police, actually, and he was invariably intoxicated. And uh, in 1926, he, he uh, headed for Australia, but the uh, authorities in Sydney, they actually deported him with a warning that they feared police would be murdered if he stayed. Starkey just couldn't settle in at all. But he had some interesting friends. One of the people that he saved in the battlefield had been Major Gordon Coates, who became, of course, our Prime Minister eight years later after the war, and he stayed in good contact. Gordon Coates actually urged him to settle down and sort of record his wartime escapades. There's some very amusing stories um, in the reminiscences of Gordon Coates, actually, that Starkey would turn up at Parliament at the most inopportune times and insist to see the Prime Minister. And, of course, he'd ask him for a 20 quid or something for a loan, and Gordon Coates would never turn him down. He was so appreciative of Starkey's heroics on the battlefield that saved his life. Yeah, Coates was injured at the Battle of Messines and was recovered from no man's land by John Douglas Stark. Yeah. Starkey, he got on the bandwagon to seek compensation for a host of medical conditions, including bleeding lungs that he had, of course, post-traumatic stress disorder. There was no such thing there. And uh, one of the doctors actually wrote, your uh, protege is a problem in peacetime. I saw him and I'm sure there is nothing in the story of bleeding from his lungs. And the chief detective at Auckland, he even uh, put in a small report about it. He said he was a good and willing worker for a day 
or two, and then something sets him off and he becomes violent and dangerous. And he set up house um, about 1929 in Auckland's Grays Avenue with a woman called Rita He, a Maori woman, and she had three children and she had two more to Stark in the early 1930s. And this is, of course, as the Depression started to hit. And um, in 1931, he was on probation in Auckland still and for another offence. And he met a prison chaplain called Reverend George Morton. This guy took a very strong interest in Stark's struggles to provide for his partner and family and also his wartime record, which he just couldn't believe the stories. He suggested that maybe he could get his story down, maybe make some money out of it and pay his bills. And it was because of Morton that Stark was introduced to Iris Wilkinson. Now, this was a writer who went by the name of Robin Hyde. She didn't live very long. She only lived about 36 years. She had very fragile mental and physical health. But she did put out about 10 books and her most famous one was this book, Passport to Hell. Now, they met about um, 1935. Now, we'll just go back to Stark. Uh, Rita, he is a wife. She died in 1934 of, of pneumonia and pleurisy. They basically lived in a slum in Auckland. They had these kids, and and Stark was introduced to Iris Wilkinson, and he saw this um, way of telling his war story as a sort of way of paying the bills. They thought that maybe this could be a great plan to do together. Now, at the time, Wilkinson was recovering from morphine addiction and she'd been living and writing in um, Grey Lodge, which was an extramural ward attached to the Auckland Mental Hospital in Avondale. And she agreed to write down Stark's story, was drawing on all the notebooks and his personal recollections, and, and they agreed that proceeds from the book would be shared equally. Now, over six feverish weeks in the autumn of 1935, Wilkinson rattled out this manuscript. First she called it the Bronze Warrior and then Crime Sheet, but eventually it became Passport to Hell. All the time Stark would be recounting this, you know, he fell for this fragile author. And in the time, the feelings became mutual, actually. They were the most completely opposite people you could ever pair up, Graham, you know. And as the weeks passed, Stark kept begging Wilkinson to marry him. But after he made a pass, she used to go to a psychologist all the time. And there's a psychologist urged her to tell Stark that she just wasn't available. And she had a diary actually reveals her mixed feelings. I refused by letter, not without a certain amount of purely speculative regret. I mean, it might have been an adventure to marry Starkey. He'd wring my neck inside a month just as well, for I hate to think what would have certainly occurred within ten months if he didn't. However, I am not going to marry him. I think things got very intense for them and she deliberately rushed the writing and editing process so she could get royalties to Stark, who she was totally in love with. And she didn't even really check the accuracy of everything. And, and some of the tall tales, I was a later challenge because she said, this is not a work of fiction, but it was a sort of documentary novel. Now, it came out in 1936, 37, I think, this book, and it was an instant success 
success in London. There was no doubt about it. And the, the British reviewers, they were raving about it. They said they just couldn't believe the tales in it. All the, the first editions sold straight away and there were hardly any copies left over for New Zealand and a second and a third edition followed. But, you know, the reception here was a little bit more muted, I suppose. But anyway, Stark took the copies and he went round all his pubs, his favourite pubs. He'd sell them all to drinkers, sign the books. He did get quite a bit of royalties from it, but they never actually paid his bills, Graham. I think it just ended up delaying a few things. And Wilkinson died about a year later. Robin Hyde, she died of pneumonia and she was a very fragile person. So Starkey had this book and no girlfriend basically after that. In 1940, the Auckland Star, they reported Stark was working at the Waiuru camp for the public works department. He was great on a shovel despite losing a few of his fingers during the war. It sort of got a pitiful end, really. 18 months later, 1942, it was February the 22nd. Stark was just totally worn out. He wasn't even 45, I don't think, Graham. He died in Auckland Hospital. I think he had pleurisy or pneumonia as well. And the Auckland Star saloon looted him, brave enough to have commended for the Victoria Cross, reckless enough to have served imprisonment, tough enough to have escaped from La Havre prison. He was 45. So a most remarkable story, isn't it, Graham? It really is. And he is certainly remembered. The monument to soldiers in Kaiapoi is actually a statue of him. It was made by William um, III, where he was a um, Christchurch monumental mason and Starkey actually posed for that statue and it shows, described as a digger um, resting after a charge into no man's land and that was modelled on Stark. It shows he's got a torn sleeve and a, a wounded arm and that statue made Trithaway one of our greatest memorial sculptures actually. He made the Christchurch memorial sculpture. Um, he was invited to do that after he made the sculpture and that one stands in Cathedral Square and it's 15 metres high surrounded by six central figures that's really our greatest war memorial but the reputation for that grew out of the statue of Starkey which is in Kaiapoi so he's well remembered but you know he's an oddity so he doesn't quite stand out like our VC heroes but in fact I don't think we've ever had anyone braver and madder as well perhaps a personality disorder just perfectly suited for war. Yeah, exactly. He was made for the battlefield. He was a natural warrior. And to, for him to come back to New Zealand and try to sort of, oh, this terrible um, this terrible life during the Depression, yeah. you know. Well, civilian life, he got himself in plenty of trouble, left, right and centre as well. Yeah, and Robin Hyde describes his, her first meeting with him in his little slum. He had three um, motherless children with him that he defended at all costs. They were trying to take them as wards of the state and he'd fight off the uh, welfare worker that would come and see him. And the rent man called and Starkey had this huge imposing figure as he stood up and said, you're going to wait another week. And the man's hot-footed off. Feel timid and scared. 
Robin Hyde sat down and took this remarkable story and fell in love with him. It's the most remarkable tale of this man, Graham. It's got everything, sort of wartime heroism and love and everything, you know? Yeah, interesting to hear that Robin Hyde said, oh, if I was to marry him, he'd probably kill me within 10 months. But good God. Well, yeah. um, next week, OJ Simpson. Yeah, that's right. Jared Hindmarsh, thank you very much. An extraordinary outsider this week. John Douglas Stark. Thank you. Oh, good one, Graham. The end of the weekend variety wireless. To be frank, I've gotten away with murder, for God's sake. So many people to thank over the years. Vicky Hyde for all those science reports over the years. All our science crew, Grant Christie, Grant Smithies, who often got Grant Christie's mails by mistake over the years. Grant Smithies wondering why he might want to come on and talk about a neutron star. Grant Christie wondering why he might know something about the Buzzcocks. Max Cryer. James Crute. Forrest and Bird. My botany boyfriend, Peter DeLang. What a resource. The media crew, Paul Cassily, Tamar Munk. Wonderful skeptics, Susie Wiles, a New Zealander of the year at one stage, mainly for an astounding batch of scones. 
Mark Honeychurch. New Zealand Skeptics, New Zealand Association of Rationalists and, Humor and Humanists, who are a bloody good bunch. Carl Walrand, who did all those Tales of the Lost. The amazing um, John McChrystal, who gave us all those shipwreck tales. And shipwreck tales and outsiders and all that sort of stuff, I'm doing my darndest to get them all archived at the Alexander Turnbull Library. So you can go listen to them any time you like. I'll be fighting for that as hard as I possibly can. I can't make any dough out of it, don't want to. It is this company's property, and that is fair enough. There's no argument there, but I just would love them to be available forever and ever. Uh, keep in touch on the Facebook page. I don't know if that's going to be up tomorrow or not, um, but there's an alternative one if you go there, just so you can keep in touch and I can keep you up to speed with all the material that has been archived over the years. And thank you so much, a listener, and the Facebook community and those subscribing to the podcast. It's been a hell of a ride. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Cheers all. Off we go.